Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Jacob. Welcome back to Fly on the Wall. Last week, we swung by Robin's home state of North Carolina in our interview with State Representative Ricky Hurtado. In this episode, The Fly visits Seattle, Washington, home of our very own comms director, Sam Kehoe. That's right, Jacob. Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin sat down with us this week to share her experience governing the largest city in the Pacific Northwest. Prior to becoming mayor, Jenny Durkin was the U.S. District Attorney for the Western District of Washington. Slow down, Sam. We need to remind our listeners to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching at FlyOnTheWallPod. It sounds like you just did, Jacob. But we should mention that you can also get in touch with us by emailing FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. our conversation with Seattle Mayor Ginny Durkin. Well, uh, Mayor Durkin, thank you so much for joining us here at Fly on the Wall. Um, so you've had a long uh, legal career in private practice, um, and then you joined the Department of Justice, and then um, obviously you're now serving as Mayor of Seattle. So talk to us a little bit about that journey. What first brought you into service as DA and then as, um, as Mayor of Seattle and, and your path to public service? You know, thanks for that, and thanks for having me on today. It's great to be with you guys. Um, You know, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was about five years old. And my sister and I used to kid that we were going to be Durkin and Durkin sisters-in-law. And I was one of eight kids. And the two of us actually did become lawyers. And when I was first started practice, I was a criminal defense lawyer primarily, and then branched out to civil litigation as well. Did that for um, a number of decades. And then President Obama nominated me to be the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington which includes Seattle and uh, the whole West part of Washington state. And so then I I flipped over to being a federal prosecutor. And in that role also served on Eric Holder's attorney general advisory committee and chaired a subcommittee on cybercrime and intellectual property. It was a really terrific um, experience. I can't say enough about the department of justice and the work that we were doing under president Obama and Eric Holder and truly was, um, an honor of my life to serve for the one of the very few public entities that is named for moral value, justice. And so it is not just a name, it becomes your obligation. From there, I went back into private practice. I was a partner at a large law firm called Quinn Emanuel and was the global chair of their computer privacy data and cyber division. Um, and had represented clients from all over the world on really interesting issues. Um, uh, And then when the mayor's office race became available, a number of people talked to me and encouraged me to run. I've been involved in civil life in Seattle and civic life um, on and off my whole career. I always found time to carve out for work for the, the public good and decided that the it seemed to make sense at the time and talked to a lot of people, ran and was lucky enough to be elected mayor. So you spoke a little about your experience as a DA. Uh, how do you think that informed your approach to the mayoral office? I think it was uh, really helpful to have the balance of both experiences, both as a criminal defense lawyer who had worked for criminal justice reforms for decades and as a federal prosecutor seeing what kinds of how you can use that office to to promote public safety, but also have important criminal justice reforms. When I was there in office, for example, our office was one of the first to institute nationally a drug court as a diversionary program instead of just the only route being convictions. It was a very successful program. 
I'd been involved in establishing a drug and mental health court at the local level when I was in private practice. So I, I think that it gives you both a broad view of kind of what is happening in not just your urban center, but in the larger regions. It also was really important because I think lawyers have a, a very exacting approach to problems and end up being very solutions oriented, which you have to be in a big city. There is so much going on at any moment in a city. You have to be able to digest a lot of information quickly, trust and delegate um, and get to solutions. Yeah. And so diving into your time as mayor, um, you know, uh, it's out here in, in D.C. at least. It's rather um, rare for someone with a strong uh, track record not to pursue reelection. Um, but of course, you have announced that um, after your term as mayor, you will not be seeking reelection. So what prompted you to seek to not seek that second term? Um, and during your first term, what were you most proud of in terms of accomplishments? So I, it's a combination of things. I, I truly believe that. Um, being an elected official, your first obligation is to make sure that you can serve the interests of the public. And 2020 was just such an incredibly difficult and challenging year for the city of Seattle. Uh, we were the first into COVID and the first to feel the economic impacts of COVID. You know, so many people lost their jobs, so many small businesses closed. Uh, and at the same time, we were a city that has a strong uh, history in both workers' rights and social justice issues. And so when the George Floyd was murdered uh, and there was a civil rights reckoning, uh, it, it became a, a significant series of events in the city of Seattle. And it, it was a really hard year for people. And we knew that going into this year, we were still going to have so many challenges. Um, coming out of COVID was gonna be incredibly difficult because we knew the vaccinations were gonna be a challenge and they turned out to be as challenging as we thought. Um, we also have a huge economic recovery to, uh, that we're going to have to undertake, as well as rejuvenation and rethinking so many things we do in the city, um, from how we get to work to where we live. Um, I really believe, I'm very fortunate, I serve on a, a global mayor's um, organization called C40 Mayors. We were founded uh, to be the mayor's voice in the fight for the climate. Um, and I was on a small subcommittee talking about how we can get global recovery for um, COVID across the globe and really focused on equity. And so coming back from COVID, I think it's so important that we not just come back to where we were, but we come back more just, more equitable and a better city. This is gonna require bringing together a lot of diverse views. And I truly believe that if the people who disagree with your approach feel they have to oppose you because it's a political campaign, it's much harder to accomplish things. And I wanted to take the politics out of the, the incredibly difficult work we have to do as much as possible. And the best way to do that was not to be involved in an election. Thank you very much. Um, so you, you mentioned that the first COVID case uh, was identified in Seattle over a year ago. So. Through that long time, how has Seattle's public health response evolved uh, through the course of the pandemic? It's evolved at warp speed. You know, when we were, we were the first region into COVID and it was um, just weeks before we learned of the first cases here, I had convened my entire cabinet to do a exercise on what we would do if COVID came to Seattle and Washington state. And we used a pandemic planning that we had for a previous H1N1 flu. Uh, the public health uh, 
estimation at the time was that we really didn't have much to worry about. There was no indication that COVID was in the community. We'd had one case, but they thought that it had been handled. Um, and then we had the large cluster of illness and deaths in the region. Um, so we suddenly realized we did have COVID here. It had already reached the level of community spread. Um, we are very fortunate in that we have really good scientific researchers and a strong um, public health community in Seattle because we totally lacked any federal leadership. We were flying blind because the CDC could not get testing at any significant level. So we literally were, were working without a flashlight. And so we had to come some estimations of how broad the disease was. And we learned very quickly based on some other studies that have been done and some flu samples have been taken, the estimations were by the time we saw the disease, there were at least 1,100 cases in the community and that it was doubling about every six to seven days. That meant that by mid-April, we would have over 70,000 cases and maybe over 12,000 deaths. Uh, it was a staggering thing that we were facing. So we had to very quickly um, work together as a region with the governor, the county executives and the mayors to move forward with a public health response. Unfortunately, the only way to stop the virus was to keep people apart so it couldn't transmit. And so we, we moved pretty rapidly. We as a large employer started having all of, most of our employees work from home. Our largest employers, Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia, and the like did the same. And that helped us stem the tide a little bit. But we still had incredible pressure on our hospitals and the disease was rising pretty quickly. So we had to take more extreme measures and the governor announced uh, a stay at home order that, that kept people at home. And then we turned the dial um, multiple times as we saw the disease rising. We're one of the first in the country to have a mask requirement. Uh, we were, you know, we were able to get more testing capability, but not in the US. I did it through one of the relationships I formed on that panel I told you about, the global mayors. And we ended up getting our testing supplies from South Korea. Um, and that testing has helped Seattle be you know, of all the major cities in America, we have the lowest incidence of disease, hospitalization, and death. So um, diving more deeply into that, despite all these challenges, Seattle boasts uh, now one of the largest COVID-19 civilian-led uh, vaccination sites in the country. What has distinguished Seattle's approach particularly and made it so successful? And what do those conversations, both with local leaders and with mayors around the globe, look like? I think what what has reason we are most successful is as elected leaders, we agreed to base our decisions on science and public health, and we agreed to speak with one voice. And so we would have disagreements sometimes, but we thought it's so important that we be unified in the strategies because a virus doesn't respect a city line or a county line. Um, and you've got to have consistency between them if you really want to fight the disease. We were able now to, we stood up our testing. We now do almost 20% of the testing in the state of Washington. One of three, one out of every three people in the city of Seattle has gone to our testing facilities. And we decided that that model was so important for us that we're trying to replicate it in vaccinations and have, have just stood up, as you noted, the largest civilian run uh, vaccination center. We just need more vaccine. I was there again yesterday 
We're currently doing between one and 2,000 vaccinations a day, but we can do 20,000 at that one site. We also have an approach where we're making sure that the vaccines are distributed equitably. You know, we've seen pretty good results in, in getting people in the, in the most at-risk groups vaccinated, but there's a big disparity between the, the white people who've been vaccinated in those groups and African-Americans, Native Americans, and other people of color. So we really focused on working with community-based organizations to get the vaccine to the people who were most vulnerable to the disease. And that has worked. Of the vaccinations that we've been doing, about 70% of the vaccinations were to people who identified as BIPOC, um, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. And, and it has been really successful in, in making sure closing some of those disparities. They still exist, but um, we've been closing those gaps rapidly. So shifting gears a little to another problem that Seattle has had to face, Seattle's homelessness crisis is a big issue that preceded your mayoral term and will surely continue to be an issue as you're leaving office as well. Uh, how have you sought to tackle this issue while you were in office? And what advice do you have for your successor in, in forming solutions to this? Really great question. So there, I will take that pre-COVID, COVID, and post-COVID, because there's such incredibly different phases in our, our challenges around dealing with the crisis of, of people who are experiencing homelessness. Before the pandemic, we were making incredible strides in, in moving more people into safe places. I shifted our shelter system from being primarily a shelter system with mats on the floor to one that was primarily enhanced shelters where people could go 24 seven, have a place to store their belongings, get case management services. Those shelters were five times more successful at moving people into permanent housing than the previous shelter system. At the same time, we were opening more spaces for people to move and doing, and we opened 500 new beds in a very short period of time. And we saw a drop in our one night count um, for the first time in our, in our city's history. And we were really working towards a comprehensive solution. We also created a regional entity because homelessness doesn't stop at city borders too, so that we could deal with the, the issue um, together as a region. For example, in the city of Seattle now, we think that about 50 to 60% of the people we're serving who are unhoused did not become homeless in Seattle. They were not living in Seattle when they came homeless, but they still need these services. The pandemic hit and the CDC um, recommendations was that we could not remove any encampments barring some other uh, factors that would make it less safe for, than the public health reasons. And so we have seen a significant increase in visible homelessness in Seattle as people moved closer into the city centers, closer to services. Um, and so now as we're coming out of the pandemic, we're going to have to deal with that situation. It will require us working as a region. It will require having more places to bring people that are safe and humane. Um, and fortunately, I had announced and we invested in a number of new affordable housing units and, uh, permanent supportive housing specifically for people experiencing homelessness. We'll have those units coming online this year. So my advice to my successor is going to be, you have to do it as a region. You have to be human-based so that you really are trying to both address the root causes of homelessness and bring people uh, into places that are, are more safe because that is the most effective thing we know to do 
to get people stabilized so that we can get them into long-term housing. So diving into um, another great debate that Seattle has been at the center of, um, like many cities across the country, um, your city experienced a variety of protests and demonstrations as part of a national conversation about how we police in the United States. Um, Seattle has at some times been criticized from the left for using excessive force on demonstrators and sometimes from the right for not adequately supporting the police. So how have you navigated this really tricky policy and political space? And what should policing in America look like in 10 years? So I think that it was a really difficult time. And I think we saw a lot of division um, along the lines that you said, some people feeling that you needed to abolish the police. Um, and others feeling that there was needed to be wholesale support for the police. I think we have to reassess policing in America, and this is a great opportunity for us to do that. Um, there are absolutely circumstances when someone calls 911 and they have an emergency that they need a police officer to show up and they need them to show up quickly. Um, and, but, on, but there's other cases where someone needs help and they need help that isn't an armed police officer. They may need a crisis intervention specialist. You may need a domestic violence specialist. So we need to be um, reevaluating re kind of how do we create alternatives, responses. Um, and I tell you, if you put police officers and advocates around a table, and the only question before them was, what are the jobs police really need to be doing? and what are some jobs other people are doing, I think those lists would be very similar. Police now are, are responding to more and more events that there are the intersection of public health crisis and social underfunding and public safety. Um, last year, in, I mean, in, in 2019, we respond, the Seattle Police Department responded to almost 17,000 crisis calls, 17,000. Um, and they did so, uh, you know, using, uh, we have a whole program on de-escalation, crisis intervention, crisis intervention teams, and they used force in very few of those cases. But it shows you that we are using police now to respond to public health issues and social issues where police shouldn't be on the leading edge. And so I think the best way to, you know, we evaluate and stand up alternatives, but we also have to get upstream so that those, um, those social, those really difficult issues, whether it's people experiencing mental health crisis, or it's someone with a substance abuse disorder, or someone is, is a repeat offender and stuck in poverty, we need to have alternatives as a society to deal with those other than just armed police. And I think that's where we need to form the discussion is how is do we as a society have a response that is, is really based upon what is the public good generally, but also how do we care for one another? And there, again, there are clearly people who commit crimes that a police response, prosecution, incarceration is the appropriate response. But there's a whole range of things that police deal with where we should find alternatives. And let me give you an example. Um, when I came in as mayor, I, you know, I, I look at a lot of data because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, and I had them pull for me the number of crisis calls that we had, how we were dealing with them, how many of them were repeat calls for individuals who were time and time again being in crisis and responding to it. And we saw that there were a number of what we call low acuity calls, people in crisis, 
that um, really it wasn't a criminal justice issue, but when you call 911, it was only the police who were rolling to the, to the incident. And when police show up, they really have very limited tools. They can either arrest someone and take them to jail, or they can take them to the hospital for involuntary commitment. Um, many, many times, that's not what a person needs. So we created a program called Health One. It's like Medic One where when they call 911, if it's a low acuity uh, call, we have the fire department role in a medic unit and it's staffed with a, a trained medic and a trained social worker. And they find out what it is the person needs to be stabilized. You know, do they need, uh, you know, it can be a whole range of things. Um, do they need their medications? They need to be, you know, get to their doctor. Do they need a place to stay? And so we have found now that those calls um, are much more successful way to divert someone away from the criminal justice system and to start dealing with the underlying health issues. So we're expanding that program. Um, and I think looking at models like that that are community-based and really try to get to what the root of the behaviors are and, and, and help somebody rather than just, okay, we have no tool here but arrest. Thank you very much for, for explaining that with such nuance. I, I really appreciate the, the nuanced approach there. But I wonder, um, while, while the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct and the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood are making headlines across the country, how do you manage that from a communications perspective? Like while, while you're trying to push for, for something that's such a complex solution, how do you handle the simultaneous media firestorm? Yeah, I, that's a great question. It is when you were in that kind of media storm and it was in, in, you know, of a magnitude that cannot be overstated because the president decided, the former President Trump decided to make it an issue. Um, and it was on Fox News every night with doctored photos and all. Um, and so it, you know, it, it really activated some of the same sentiment that you saw in the attack on the Capitol and became a political issue. And what you have to do is, I think, in any issue is you have to ground yourself in the truth and you have to ground yourself in what you're trying to accomplish. And it is it is not inconsistent to say that you can support police and you can think of alternatives to policing. Those things must coincide and live together. And so you know that you're going to have this firestorm. And what you've got to focus on is what are we trying to do here and what is the right thing to do? Um, and also, what is what is possible? You know, at various times during the the what they called the autonomous zone on Capitol Hill, um, it was not possible for the police to move in and clear it out without significant uses of force. Um, that was the, that was the conclusion of the police chief and her command staff. And so we had to work in the confines that we have to get to a point where we thought that we could return that space to the community and restore it and at the same time not create yet another huge conflict between the police and protesters and so we worked to um, throughout that period of time to make sure that we were doing all we could to restore that space for the community to help the businesses that were there and the residents um, but with the very reality of that in order to move the protesters, it was going to have to be primarily voluntary, or we we're gonna to have to have a strategy that did not involve significant uses of force 
um, given that we were in the midst of, you know, protests against police force. You mentioned working with Police Chief Carmen Best, who, of course, is the first black female police chief of Seattle. What was it like when she resigned? And more broadly, what is it like working with the Seattle Police Department as mayor? So I think that, look, one of the most important um, obligations a mayor has is public safety. And public safety is bigger than policing, as we were just discussing. Public safety, I believe, comes primarily from having healthy and resilient communities. So you have access to affordable housing and health care and all the things that make a strong community. We had so underinvested in our communities of color in the city of Seattle. And during COVID, those disparities were really laid bare. Um, if you looked at both the health and economic impacts of COVID, they were significantly more for communities of color. And as mayor, my obligation was, was to say, how do we as a city address the very real impacts of systemic racism? And how do we invest in communities at a scale that we can start to get more parity and close the disparities? And at the same time, how do we move forward in policing so we can, if we need to, uh, recalibrate how much we need in an armed police response versus alternatives to a police response? All three of those things have to happen together. You can't abolish the police and, and not, or any part of what policing is if you don't have another system in place to deal with what you're trying to address. And at the same time, no matter how much you try to divest from a police department, you will not do it soon enough or quick enough to make the scale of investments you need to start closing the disparities for communities of color. So we were really, you know, very, early on focused on those three things. How do we at scale start making investments into communities of color so that they have the healthy and resilient communities that are, are the key to true public safety and community safety? Um, so I pledged $100 million in new funding to do that and believe we need to do that over 10 years. At the same time, we have policing. We know we need armed police and, and traditional police for some elements of public safety, we just do. But how do we also start building up those other alternatives that are community-based? And so together, if you focus on those three things and, and stay away from slogans and bumper stickers, and you look at what are your, the results you're trying to get, then it makes decision-making um, clearer, not easier. It, was, it is still was a very challenging um, climate uh, because, you know, for example, we had 50 percent, I mean, most of my city council uh, pledged to cut the police department by 50 percent. Um, they determined that wasn't really doable because most of the budget is tied up in police officers. And if we cut half the police officers, it would have a significantly detrimental impact on community safety everywhere in the city. So you just have to focus, you know, with all the criticisms, you just got to keep listening to people, learn from people. And, and really focus on what are you trying to accomplish here? And we knew we have to, not just in Seattle, but across America, we have to be honest about the impacts of systemic racism. And we have to look institution by institution and start tearing down those bad systems and put new ones in their place. We have to invest in community of color that have been so under resources for generations, uh, particularly the African-American community. And we also have to reimagine policing because we're a different type of society now and our police must work to serve the people, 
And that requires us to do some of that hard work. Mayor Durkin, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good luck, guys. I hope to see you soon. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. The fly is resting its wings and taking next week off, but be on the lookout for our mid-season recap. So make sure that you're following at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And again, our email is flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back with more episodes of The Fly in two weeks, so see you then.